So if you got your message notes out, go ahead and pull those out. We're in this series to said this is week number three, and I know I say this a lot, and, and, and you just got to know I mean it every time I say it, but I think this is my favorite week of the series. <laughs> and the reason why I say that often is because I, I got the best job in the world. I get to go on a treasure hunt every single week into God's Word and, and find truth and find treasure and find gems and gold, and, and it's so exciting every week because the, the Bible never gets old. Like, it is new every morning. You can read the same verse hundreds of times and always get fresh revelation out of it. And so I really do believe, like, like whatever I'm teaching at that moment is the most exciting thing in my heart at that given moment because the Word of God is so fresh and real and alive, and it's, it's just a daily part of my life. But I really do love this message, and there's a lot of great just powerful truth that can set us free when we dig into it. It's a picture of Jesus today. And I really believe with all my heart that my job on the weekend, when I preach and teach the Bible, my job is not to teach you how to live a good Christian life. My job is to reveal to you how beautiful Jesus is. If you can see Jesus and all of his beauty and all of his grace and all of his goodness, it'll transform you from the inside out. Paul puts it like this, when we behold his glory, we're transformed into his image. See, my heart is to give people to live the life they were created to live, but I can't do that with self-help. I can't do that with, with, you know, here's how to do this and here's how to do this. I do it by giving you a picture of how beautiful Jesus is, because when you behold him in his beauty, God says under the new covenant, he takes his law and his heart and his desires, and he writes it inside of you, where it's not the life you have to live, it's the life that you naturally want to live because it becomes your new nature. And that only takes place when you begin to see how beautiful Jesus is. That's his grace, his goodness, his, his mercy, his love. Too many of us, we've made Christianity so hard, we've turned it into a religion and made it so difficult that it's actually pushed people away. And what you're going to see today is the beauty of it. The foundation verse for the series is John chapter 1 and verse 17. I love this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, I can give you something or I can come to your house. How many know one is very, very personal and the other is not so personal? The law was given on tablets of stone. It's not personal. It's, it's, not, it's not a person. It's just a hard tablet of stone, and the law will always condemn us. The law will always make us unworthy and unclean and undeserving, but what I love about it is grace and truth came because it's the person of Jesus. Jesus was full of grace, and he was full of truth, and what's interesting is this word came in the original Greek language. Our New Testament was written in original Greek. It's a singular verb, meaning there's a singular subject. So often we look at grace and truth as two different subjects. They're not two different subjects. They're one subject. It's a singular verb, meaning it's one subject. It's actually the truth of grace when you really study out what it's saying. It's the truth of God's grace because it's the truth of God's grace that sets us free. If truth meant right and wrong and God's expectations and the law, again, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why didn't God say for the law and truth was given through Moses, but grace came through Jesus. No, because truth is attached to grace. That's why Jesus in John 8 says, you will know the truth. The truth of what? The truth of grace, and that will set you free. See, the truth of the law never set anyone free. It was the truth of grace that changes our heart, changes our desires, changes us from the inside out. So today we're going to look at Mark chapter 5, and we're going to look at the last half of it. They call it the tale of two daughters, 
or the two daughters in this story, and it gives you a beautiful picture of, of the hesed of God, God's hesed. And you may be thinking, now how in the world do we get hesed out of a, a, a Greek text? Because hesed is a Hebrew word, and the foundation of the series is a Greek text from the first century. It's, it's John, which was written in the original Greek language. Well, when you study hesed, which really the big picture of hesed is God's covenantal love for mankind, the Old Testament translators always struggle with the word hesed. It's one of the, one of the most used words in the Old Testament hundreds of times. David used it over 127 times in the Psalms alone. Well, depending on what translation of the Bible you read, you're going to get a different word for hesed. Some, you know, NASB, NIV, King James, it's always different. Some Bibles translate hesed as God's mercy, some as God's loving kindness, some as God's loyalty, some as God's everlasting or enduring love. We really didn't have a full revelation of what hesed was until the New Testament came along. And around the 1800s, there was a Hebrew scholar who decided to translate the Greek New Testament into Hebrew for Hebrew-speaking Christians. And when he came to John chapter 1, this Greek word that we translate into grace, it's the Greek word charis, he translated charis into the Hebrew word hesed. And when you really think about it, hesed is the one word, or, or grace is the one word that is heavy enough, that, that is big enough to encompass all the words the Old Testament translators struggled with. When you think about God's grace, it encompasses his loyalty. God's grace encompasses his loving kindness. It encompasses his mercy. It's enduring. It's unfailing. It lasts forever. Grace is a word that is big enough for all of the other words to be combined into it. And I want to give you a picture of that grace, of that hesed through the life of Jesus today. We're going to look at the end of Mark, the story of two daughters. Verse 21, it says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Now, the lake is the Sea of Galilee, and we talk a lot about the Sea of Galilee, and people get this idea that it's this massive sea. It's a lake. It is a, it's not even a big lake, it's a small lake, it's one of the most significant bodies in the world of water, but it's a very small lake. But every time you see this phrase, other side, I want you to get a picture of the other side. That's what it looks like. That's the other side right there. Uh, this is Cedric, who was with me last year, we were in Israel, and we're standing on the shore of where Jesus was going to by boat, and the other side that he came from was, was right there. I mean, it is a lake. It's just one of the most significant bodies of water in the world. So when you hear the phrase other side in the gospel, that's, that's a picture of the other. You can literally see the other side. Verse 22, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Here's the first daughter you see in the story. We'll show you the second daughter a little bit later. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, one of the things about the Bible you need to understand is there's nothing random or coincidental about the Bible. The Holy Spirit very, very carefully made sure every detail was recorded exactly the way he wanted it recorded. What's very interesting about this, this very short passage of Scripture in the end of chapter 5 is we have two daughters you're going to see in the story, but we also have two number 12s. Anytime you see something like that, take notice because it's, it's 
like, it's, it's not random. The fact that there's two number 12s mentioned in the story, it's connecting and it's showing us something. And I'm going to bring you there towards the end of the message and kind of unveil what, what we see through this. But she has this bleeding. It, it was, without being too gross, it was a menstrual cycle that never stopped for 12 years, rendering her completely unclean. And it says she suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and it spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So now she's sick and poor. She's living in poverty because she spent everything. She, and there's no telling what kind of medical procedures they put her through in this time period to deal with the issue that she has. And the problem with this is according to Leviticus chapter 15 in the Old Testament, this bleeding renders her unclean. Which means if she comes in physical contact with anybody else, she makes that person unclean. And they're not allowed to worship in the temple for at least seven days because they become unclean because of her uncleanness. And this wasn't just a, a once a month thing for her. This was a constant thing that she had lived with for 12 years. So I want you to get a picture that it's not just a physical issue going on. It's an emotional issue. Can you imagine the emotional damage this caused to her? Can you imagine the rejection she felt, the isolation? I mean, she's unclean. She can't touch another human being without making them unclean. The rejection, she would have felt unworthy. She would have felt broken. She would have felt like somehow God was mad at her. She somehow sinned, and this was God's punishment and judgment on her life. And she just lived in this brokenness, and she tried everything to fix her situation, and nothing she tried worked. It's really a picture of our life before Christ. Before we found Christ, nothing worked. N nothing we did. That's why I love my job, because in my job, we have the only answer to the world. Like, 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 if you don't believe me, just go try everything the world has to offer. You'll be back. You'll find out very quickly the only hope for mankind is Jesus. The only answer for the world that we live in is Jesus. And she tried everything, and nothing worked. It just left her more and more broken, more and more empty, more and more isolated, in just a horrible position. And it says, when she had heard about Jesus, she didn't hear Jesus, she heard about Jesus. She came up behind him in the crowd. I've always wondered, what did she hear about Jesus? What, what could she have possibly heard to draw her out of the shadows? to pull her out of isolation, to pull her into... Do you realize she could have been stoned to death? She's going through a crowd of people as unclean. Every person she bumped into became unclean as a result of her. Do you, do you understand how, what a risk this is? Which brings me to one of the most important questions, and today is not a typical point one, point two, point three. I'm going to give you some powerful thoughts out of this chapter, and the first one is this question, what have I heard about Jesus? This is an important question because there's a lot of people out there hearing the wrong message, and the reason Christianity has a bad rap right now, and the reason a lot of people are walking away from the church is because they're not hearing the right thing about Jesus. They're not hearing the right thing about the gospel. They're not hearing the right message about who God is, we're hearing the wrong message. We're hearing that this angry, mean God is out to get us, and we've got to obey and do all of these rules so that he'll accept us and maybe, just maybe, let us in at the end. And we're not preaching the gospel anymore. We're not showing people the good news anymore. You know, I was with the family last week after our 
Saturday night service. They've joined our church since we began this series, and they're loving it. But they said, it's so hard to get. And I said, why is it so hard? This is what they said. They said, because it's too good to be true. I was like, well, that's exactly why we call the gospel good news. It's not supposed to be hard news. It's not supposed to be bad news. It's not supposed to be difficult news. It's supposed to be good news. That's what makes Christianity different from every other world religion. So what did she hear about Jesus? Well, it wasn't the law because the law condemned her. The law declared that she was unworthy. The law declared that she was unclean. It wasn't God's law that she heard from Jesus. It was the grace. It was the hesed of God that she heard about him. It says when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. The version in Luke tells us it was the edge of his cloak because she thought if I just touch his clothes, if I can just grab hold of the edge of his garment, I will be healed. So let me give you a picture of what's going on here. Numbers chapter 15 tells us, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garment. Corners is the Hebrew word kanaf, which means wings. It's the wings. There's the, you know, we come under the wings of God for protection of your garments with a blue. The word blue is tekeleth in Hebrew. It's where we get the root word kalah. Kalah is what Jesus cried out on the cross. Kalah, kalah, it is finished. It's finished. It's, it's the finished work on each tassel. So what Jesus would have been wearing in this time period, what they've worn for years, it's called the tallit. The tallit is the, the Jewish prayer shawl. And on the tallit, at the end of every tallit, you see, have what you call the zitzit, the corners, the, the kanaf, which is attached to the, to the hem of the garment. This is the hem that King David would have cut off from King Saul in the, in the cave. Remember, he cut the corner of Saul's garment. It would have been the zitzit. The zitzit is the holiest part of the garment. You see, the garment is a picture of the law. And the holiest part is the corners, the wings of the garment. Well, for us, if we place ourselves under the law, we're condemned, we're unclean, we're unworthy. But Jesus, under the law, is the only one that fulfilled it perfectly, making him righteous, making this a picture, typology of the robe of righteousness in our life. And the holiest part of the robe, the righteousness, the finished work of Jesus, the tekela. You see, in, in the original ones, there was a snail from Tyree Sidon area that produced a certain blue color that's now gone extinct, but it was a blue color that would have been in the tassel. It was the, it was the representation of the finished work of what Jesus did on our behalf, his righteousness that is now a gift to us. Now, let me just stop and say for a moment, don't go buy one of these if you think you need one of these to pray. This is a sermon prop. This is typology. It's a symbol. We don't need to like get into all like the, the Jewish symbolism to try to find more meaning in our faith. I don't need the picture of the robe of righteousness because I'm wearing the actual robe of righteousness right now. Like this is a picture of the robe of righteousness. It, it, it's, just a, it, it's just a physical picture of the spiritual robe that I have on right now because of what Jesus did on the cross on my behalf. But through all of the Old Testament typology and symbolism, we find Jesus and see Jesus. And so I want you to see what's happening in the story. This woman comes into the crowd, even though she's unclean, even though she could be stoned to death for this, she comes up behind Jesus and she grabs hold of the holiest, 
holiest part, under his wings, the kanaf, the holiest part, the finished work, the righteousness of Christ she grabs hold of. See, here's why I think she did it. I think she knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. See, Malachi tells us this about the coming Messiah, Jesus. But for you who fear my name. Now remember, every time Jesus interprets the word fear in the New Testament, he changes it to the word worship. Jesus quotes the Old Testament often, and anytime he quotes a passage that says, fear of God, fear the Lord, he always changes the word fear to worship. Jesus sees the word fear as worship. So those who worship my name, the son of righteousness, this is a messianic prophecy pointing to Jesus, will rise with healing in its wings. See, she heard this, 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 this could be the Messiah. He has all the signs of the coming Messiah. He's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. If I can just get to the wings of his garment, there's healing in the wings. If I can just grab a hold of his righteousness, the hem of his garment, the, the kanaf, if I can get under the kanaf, under his righteousness, there's healing in the wings. But, but here's the problem, and this, where it, this is where it hits home for us. The problem is Isaiah 64, and I believe this prophecy is here for Mark chapter 5. This sets up the story we read. It says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. This woman became unclean. She had this issue of blood which made her unclean, made her unworthy, made her unacceptable. And all, and this is where it gets very difficult to understand. All of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make sense to me. What makes sense to me is all of my sinful deeds are filthy rags. All of the evil, bad things that I have done in my life, all of the evil, bad things I've done, they are filthy rags. What doesn't make sense to me is the best things that I've done in my life, the most noble things I've done in my life, the most worthy things, the most generous things, the most kind things, the most compassionate things I have ever done in my life are filthy rags in the sight of God. That doesn't make sense. That's offensive. I mean, you're telling me the best things that I've ever done are filthy rags in the sight of God? All the good things I've done in my life are worthless in the sight of God. They're filthy rags in the sky. And here's how this connects. This word filthy rags in the Hebrew language, without being too graphic, what it literally means is a soiled tampon. This woman had lived with a soiled tampon for 12 years. And it says, all of our righteous deeds are but a filthy... This woman's bleeding is a picture of our self-righteousness. It's a picture of us trying to earn our way into heaven through our performance. It's a picture of us trying to be good enough, obedient enough, righteous enough so that God will accept us. But all of our righteousness, all of our good, all of our efforts are meaningless because they cannot, none of us will ever be good enough. No matter how good you are, you'll never be good enough. And that's why we say to see the beauty of the cross, I must first go through the offense of the cross. If you've never been offended at the gospel, it's possible you've never really considered the gospel. Because to truly, honestly look at the gospel, it's offensive. To say to somebody that you're not good enough, and nothing you will ever do will ever be good enough. 
You need a savior. You need Jesus because you cannot save yourself. See, this, this is why Christianity is difficult for people in North County. See, we like law, we like religion in North County because we feel like we're pretty good. We know where the bad people live. They live north of here. We're the good people. That's why we live in North County, <laughs> right? We're trying to be good parents and good husbands and good fathers and provide for our family and feed our kids and take care of things. We're the good people. We know where the, the bad people are. We are the good people, and that's why we would rather have religion. We would rather have the law. We would rather have mixture because the gospel is offensive to us because the gospel tells me that all the good things I do are filthy rags, that nothing I do in my own ability will ever save me. I mean, think about it like this, and at risk of offending some of you because that's kind of what I'm trying to do is, is help you see how offensive it is. How many of you are parents? How many of you have parents here in North County try really hard to be a good parent? Like you feed your kids, you make sure they're clothed, you make sure they're, they're doing good at school, you take care of them, you love them, right? Do you realize in the sight of God you're no different than the crack addict mother who's selling her kids for sex so she can get her next fix? It's pretty offensive, isn't it? pretty offensive. Do you understand? This is, this is what it's saying. All of our righteous deeds are filthy wrecks. The, not, not the worst things we do in our life, but the very best things we've done in our life are worthless because our goodness and our righteousness can never save us. It's a picture. The, her bleeding is a picture of self-righteousness. It's a picture of religion. It's a picture of her doing everything in her own ability to try to save herself, heal herself, fix herself. And it wasn't until she let go of trying to save herself and grabbed onto the finished work of Christ, grabbed onto his righteousness, that um, what happens in the next verse is immediately her bleeding stops. Soon as, she try, as soon as she stops trying to save herself, as soon as she stops trying to earn it in her self-righteousness, which is a filthy rag, and grabs hold of his righteousness, the bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. You see, as long as she was bleeding in her body, she needed a filthy rag. And she couldn't conceive, she couldn't be fruitful, she couldn't produce. Again, it's a picture of our self-righteousness. It's a picture of us trying to earn from God what is freely Given, as soon as she grabbed the zit zit, the, the, the finished work, the tassel, the picture of righteousness of Jesus, which gives us an incredible truth, grab hold of his righteousness and let go of my own. If I want to see blessings flow in my life, if I want to see, this, this is what Paul talks about in Galatians 3, do you receive miracles by the works of the law or by believing? Believing in his righteousness, not your own. See, as soon as I let go of my own self-righteousness, trying to earn my way into heaven and trying to, trying to earn favor with God and earn miracles with God by doing this and that and the other and grab hold of his righteousness, rest in the finished work of Christ. Do you know what's funny? We talked about this at our staff meeting this week as a team. There's only one place under the new covenant in the New Testament where the Bible commands us to work. Do you know where it is? It's in Hebrews. It says, work to enter rest. Labor to enter rest. The only place we're supposed to work is to get to a place of rest. Like I'm work to rest because when I rest in the finished work of Christ, then I produce. Then I see the flow. Then I see the miracles. Then I see the blessing begin to take hold in my life. It's a beautiful picture. That's why Jesus says, seek first my kingdom and my righteousness. If you grab hold of my righteousness, everything else will be added into your life. It'll flow out of you. 
Verse 21, at once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and he asked, who touched my clothes? He wanted to know who did it. You see the people crowding against you as disciples answer, and yet you can ask who touched me. But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, fear and trembling, and told him the whole truth. Now, oftentimes we read this, we, we, we really don't understand what's happening in her. We think she's scared because she got caught. Like Jesus caught her. She just stole a miracle. She stole a healing. Jesus caught her. Now she's scared. She's fearing and trembling because she's in trouble because she did something she wasn't supposed to do. And, and, and what she, is Jesus going to take it back? Is Jesus going to punish her because she grabbed hold of a miracle that she wasn't supposed to grab hold of? That's not what this means. Remember in the Bible series, we taught one of the keys to interpreting the Bible is let the Bible interpret the Bible. Find phrases over in the Bible and it'll give you clarity. Well, go back to Jeremiah. We understand what fear and trembling means. And this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good I do for them. They're going to hear good. They're not going to hear my judgment. They're not going to hear my wrath. They're going to hear my good. And what's going to happen? They shall fear and tremble because of all the good and all the prosperity I provide for it. See, fear and trembling is not, um, I'm scared of Jesus, I just got caught. It's I'm overwhelmed with his goodness. I'm overwhelmed that he just healed me, that he just... Let me give you a picture. How many of you have ever seen Extreme Home Makeover? <laughs> what happens at the end of the show? They fear and tremble, right? I mean, you literally see people start... They, they unveil the house, and this family sees the goodness of what just happened to them. What happens? They begin to cry. They begin to tremble. They begin... It's fear in trembling because of the good that was given. That's what's happening to this woman. She's not afraid of Jesus. She's not scared of Jesus. She's, she's overwhelmed with what he just did for her, and he said to her, daughter. Do you know this is the only woman in the entire Bible he called daughter? The only woman Jesus called daughter in the New Testament. Why did he call her daughter? I want you to remember, it wasn't just a physical sickness that was tormenting her. The physical sickness caused an emotional brokenness in her life for 12 years. She lived as an outcast. Can you imagine how this woman felt? She felt unworthy. She felt unwanted. She felt like God was punishing her. She felt like she was no good. She felt God could never love me. Why would God do this to me? Jesus didn't want to just heal her physical body. He wanted to heal her heart. So he says, daughter. What is he saying? He's saying, I want you. You're mine. You're part of my family. You belong to me. You're accepted. You're worthy. You're not unworthy. You're worthy. You're, if you see me as the Messiah, I want you to know I see you as my daughter. That's how valuable you are to me. It's a beautiful picture of how he feels for us. See, he doesn't want to just heal your physical condition. He wants to heal your heart. He says, your faith is healed. You go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Why did Jesus want to know who did it? Why did Jesus want to look her in the eye and see her face? You see, Jesus didn't want her to just steal you know, a miracle privately and quietly and go away healed. Jesus wanted to see her face. Why? Because in the Old Testament, under the law, you could not look at the face of God. Remember Moses? 
God says, you can see my backside, but nobody can see my face. Under the law, you cannot look at the face. Jesus is saying, under grace, I want you to see my face. I want you to know that I wanted to do this for you. Under grace, we have face-to-face relationship with God for the very first time. The wall, the veil has been torn down. We are now worthy. We are now accepted. We are now loved. We can look him in the eyes for the first time because of grace. Jesus wanted her to know, I wanted to give you. You didn't take this. I I wanted to do this for you. You're worthy. You're loved. You're accepted. And this is exactly how he feels about every one of you. And then what's very interesting, he says, go in peace. This word in, in the Greek, is not the traditional word en. It's it's the Greek word ice, which is e-i-s, which literally should be translated into. Jesus says, go into shalom, into peace. Who is peace? He is the Prince of Peace. Peace is not something God gives, it's who he is. Jesus says, come into me and you will live freed from suffering. He didn't want her to just receive freedom, he wanted her to live in freedom. He wanted her to stay free. So he says, come inside of me, inside of peace there is freedom. Jesus is giving her an invitation to live the rest of her life inside of peace, inside of shalom, inside of who he is. Again, it's a picture of resting in the finished work of what he did on the cross. Because it's what he does for us that produces in our life, not what we do for him. When you rest in his finished work, you'll actually accomplish more, produce more, work harder. It just won't feel like it. Because when you carry his yoke, it feels light and it feels easy. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead. And again, there's two daughters. There's the woman Jesus calls daughter, and there's this little girl who's the daughter. And they said, why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, and I I believe Jesus is saying this to many of you today, because you're looking at a situation that feels dead. Maybe it's a career, a business, maybe it's a marriage, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a physical health thing, and you're looking at something that appears dead. And I want you to hear the words of Jesus for your situation. Don't be afraid, just believe. He's an expert at raising the dead. He's an expert at taking things that look hopeless and bringing them back to life. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John. I'm going to talk in a moment why Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, who were with him, and he went in where the child was. He took her by the hand. This is two times in the same story Jesus should be rendered unclean. Numbers chapter 5 tells us if we touch a dead body, we become unclean. The woman with the issue of blood was unclean. She touched Jesus, making Jesus unclean. See, here's the good news. You may be sitting here today feeling like, I'm too dirty for God. I'm too unclean for God. My past, there's, there's so much filth in my life. If I try to come to God in this condition, I'll ruin it. I'll make a mess of it. Let me put it like this. You don't take a bath before you take a shower. Like the, here's the beauty of this story. When the unclean touches the clean... It should make the clean unclean. But in the case of Jesus, when the unclean touches the clean, the unclean become clean. And that's the beauty of what is happening in this story. Jesus should be rendered unclean, but his power flows opposite. When you, as an unclean person, a broken person, a sinner with filth in your life, come to Jesus and you take hold of him, his cleansing makes you righteous. 
And that's exactly the picture we see happening in the story. And he says to her, Talitha kum. Remember what this is called, talit? He literally covers her in the robe of righteousness. Talitha kum, which means my little girl, arise. He places her under his righteousness and brings her back to life. And raises something that was dead back to life because of his righteousness. This is, this is what this is. It's a picture of how we're supposed to minister in the generation today. You see, if we want to raise the dead, and I'm talking about spiritually dead, because there's a lot of people that we work with, neighbors that we have that are spiritually dead, their hearts have not been woken up to Christ yet. Let me tell you, people are leaving the church right now and, and, and turning their back on Christianity because of the law. But if we will take his robe of righteousness and begin to throw it over people again and preach grace and preach the good news, all of a sudden you will see dead people coming back to life because nobody's offended at the good news. They're offended at the law. They're offended at the fact that I'm not good enough. It says immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12. Here's the second 12 in the story. Which means when she was born, the other woman began to bleed. And as long as this little girl was alive, the other woman bled. What this is, and this is just for free. I just want to do this for fun for a moment. <laughs> this is symbolism of the end times is what it is. It's a picture from the time of Christ to the time of now of what's taking place prophetically. Because 12, when you study the numerology, 12 is the number of governmental order. You've got 12 disciples that are the order of the church, 12 tribes that are the order of Israel. You have two daughters. They each represent one. So the first 12, the woman with the issue of blood, she represents the church. It's, it's a picture of the 12 disciples, the, the picture of the church. And the little girl is the 12 tribes. She represents Israel. So let me, let, me, let me paint the story like this. Jesus is on his way to raise young Israel from the dead, and the church comes from behind and grabs hold of its healing. Is that not what's taken place over the last 2,000 years? Do you realize Jesus is coming back to raise Israel from the dead? Jesus is coming back for his brothers and sisters that have rejected him. He's coming back to raise Israel from the dead. And Romans tells us that when he returns, the second coming of Christ, every Jewish person will respond to him as the Messiah. But what's taken place in the meantime is the church, us, we've come from behind and we've grabbed hold of his righteousness and received our healing and now have become his church, his bride as he returns for his brothers and sisters. It's a beautiful picture there. That was just for free, for fun. Um, <laughs> let me give you something more important to the story now. Why Peter, James, and John? Why Peter, James, and John? Why not James, John, and Peter? That's the alphabetical order, James, John, and Peter. And even in, in the Hebrew or the Greek language, it's out of order. Writers don't do that. They put it in the right order. Why Peter, James, and John? Well, look at their names. Peter means stone. Peter means stone or rock. That, that's the name Petros, the rock, stone. The law was given on tablets of stone. Peter represents the law. James means to supplant or replace. That's what the name James means. John, John is Johannine. Hannah is grace. John is God's grace or God is gracious. Put it together. Peter, James, and John. The law has been replaced by grace. Jesus goes into the room with this young girl and he brings the law has been replaced by grace and he raises Israel 
from the dead. Let me show you one other place in the Bible where, where he takes specifically Peter, James, and John. Matthew 17, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, if you're a Jew in the first century and Moses and Elijah's appear, I mean, they are the big dogs. They, they are the heroes. They are, they are the two top guys of the Old Testament. It's the law and it's the, there's nobody higher than these two guys in the Jewish mindset from the Old Testament. I mean, these are, they are, they are the guys right there. They're the men right there. And if you're in a situation where you've got Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, let me give you some advice. Don't say anything. Just listen. <laughs> What they have to say is a lot more important than what you have to say in this moment. But in this story, Jesus brings Peter with him. And Peter decides he's going to talk. Like what I have to say is Peter is so much more important than anything Moses or Elijah could be saying right now. So Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters. It's the Hebrew word Sukkoth, where we get the, the festival of Sukkot, which is the festival of shelters when they live kind of in the wilderness for 40 years. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's build three shelters, one, one for each of you. And while he was still speaking, let me just tell you, when God interrupts you mid-sentence, that's not good. <laughs> like, like, like when God has to shut you down, like, like, interrupt in the middle of you talking when God just kind of like shuts things down on you, that's not a good thing. While he was still speaking, a bright bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, not you, Peter, Jesus. This is my son. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Peter, listen to him. What he has to say is so much more important than what you have to say. In fact, what he has to say is more important than the law and the prophets. Don't listen to Moses. Don't listen to Elijah. Listen to Jesus. Listen to my son. Listen to what he has to say. In other words, listen to Hesed. Listen to my Hesed, my good news, my grace for mankind. See, what Peter was doing is he was trying to put Jesus on the same level with the law and the prophets. Let's build three shelters. Let's make you equals. Let's make grace an equal to the law and to the prophets, not realizing the law and the prophets pointed to Jesus. They were not equals to Jesus. It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said, don't be afraid. And when they looked, they saw no one except Jesus. See, as soon as Peter put Moses and Elijah on the same pedestal as Jesus, they backed out. They disappeared. They were gone. They're like, no, 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 we're not going to be caught in this conversation. Like, no, no, we... All we did was point to him. We are not equals to him, and they were out of the picture. They disappeared, and all that was left was Jesus. And and what, what Jesus says here is very prophetic, not just for this story, but for us today. Why? Because the voice of the Father says, listen to him. When God says, listen to him, the very first words that come out of Jesus have prophetic implication years beyond this moment. They apply to our life today. What does Jesus say? Get up, don't be afraid. He restores them. You don't, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be on your face. You don't need to be afraid. Get up. You see, the heart of Hesed is don't be afraid. I, I didn't come to judge you. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. You don't need to be afraid of God. So many people are afraid of God. They, they think God is a cosmic 
bully in the sky just waiting to catch you doing something wrong so that he can smite you with judgment. Now, I want you to hear the voice of Jesus. He says, don't be afraid. I'm not here to judge you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. I'm here to give my life for you. This is the heart of Hesed for us. No commands. Great. See, when Moses was on the mountain with God, Moses came down with commands, the law. Jesus is in the presence of God. He comes down with grace. Look at the difference. Mark 9, who also tells the story, Mark says, when Jesus came down the mountain, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder, and they ran to greet him. Do you remember when Moses came down from the mountain? Moses had the glory of the law on his face, and it terrified people, and people ran from him. Jesus spends time on the mountain. He comes down with the glory of grace on his face, and instead of people running from him, they run to him. Completely different than what we saw with Moses. What does it mean? People run from the law, but they run to grace. That's why we need to preach the good news. People need to hear the good news. They need to hear the gospel. They need to hear the finished work of what Jesus has done on their behalf, that Jesus went to the cross and he paid it all. He paid it all. Because people run to grace. They're attracted to grace, but they're terrified of the law. They run from the law. Would you close your eyes with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, we come before you today, and we just, we're so grateful for your great hased, your, your love, your grace, your kindness, your mercy, your loyalty that you have shown us, that it hasn't been based on our loyalty to you, it's based on your loyalty to us, because our loyalty has fallen short. There are so many times I've wanted to do the right things, and I've betrayed you, and I've failed you, and I've, I've, I've constantly just made a mess of things. And so, God, I am so grateful today that your love for me is not conditional to my faithfulness to you. Your love for me is conditional on your faithfulness to me. Your great hased for me. Thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to close with one song of worship, and then we'll be dismissed. During this song, our prayer team is going to be available. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want you to know today Jesus would love to forgive you of everything. He would love to accept you. And if you'll come to him with all your brokenness, all the dirt in your life, he will make you clean. You will walk out of here today forgiven. You will walk out of here today righteous and accepted because of what he did on your behalf, not because of anything you have to do for him. He did it for you. And here's the beauty, because people think, well, you know, you can't say that to people because then people are going to live however they want to live. No, they're not. See, grace produces holiness. We want people to live holy lives. We want people to live lives that are set apart, meaning different, not doing what everyone else is doing. The law does not produce holiness. Grace produces holiness. The more you behold his goodness, the more you see his glory, the more you, you, you understand how beautiful, loving, kind, merciful he is, it transforms your heart. All of a sudden, holiness begins to flow out of your life, not because you have to, but because it becomes your nature, it becomes your desire, it becomes your new appetite. That's the new covenant. God says, I will do this to your heart. You just come to me and see my goodness and see what I've done for you and watch what I'll do through you. So don't come to God thinking you've got to do all this stuff for him. No, no, no. Rest in what he's done for you and you'll begin to live the life that you've always wanted to live, that you're trying to live. 
that you keep failing over and over and over, like I'm trying so hard and I keep failing, stop trying, rest in what he's done, and all of a sudden you'll see that life that you want to live begin to take place. It happens through his grace, his mercy.